Thank you for being here this morning. And for a lot of us, uh, we've been uh, heavy this week. This weekend's been heavy. Um, and uh, I'm thankful that we can come and be together this morning and comfort each other, encourage each other, uh, just be with each other in the presence of the Lord um, together as a family. And I <clears throat> told people yesterday, um, and I've been saying this over the last few days, uh, if this is, uh, this is what it means to be a Christian, is to walk with each other in darkness, um, to walk with each other in pain and sorrow and grief. Um, and if it's not this, uh, it's nothing else. It really is. And so we, we do this together, and we do this uh, for Dave and for Brooke, knowing that uh, they will do it for us someday because we will all walk through things. Uh, we will all need each other at some point to sit with us, to grieve with us, to weep with us, to support us, to bring us meals, um, to clean our house, <laughs> to, to do the things um, like that that we will need. And so we do it for each other, knowing that at some point others will do that for us. So thank you for being here this morning um, to... to be with us and to comfort us and to sit with each other in this. Um, if you have your Bible, would you turn to John chapter 1? <clears throat> this Advent season, uh, we as a church are looking together at uh, really what Advent is. It is the mission of God. Uh, what we celebrate during the season, um, who we recognize this season connects to what God has been and what God is and what God will continue to do in this world. And before we get into John chapter 1 this morning, um, I just want to talk about that for a second. Because when we talk often as Christians, as uh, people involved in missions and, and in global missions, often what we talk about is what do we need to do? Where do we need to go? And what we need to ask first and before anything else, we need to answer and we need to have the answer to the question, what is God doing? What is God doing in our world? And last week, Pastor Nate brought us to Isaiah chapter 6 and continue to do in this world is fill this earth with his presence. Fill this earth with his glory. That people are transformed across this globe. That places are transformed that systems and structures and ways of being in this world are transformed through the power of the presence of God. We say this over and over and over again here, that life with God under the rule of God is available to us now, that it's not something we wait for and we receive when we die, but that God is, is, making all things new. 
that he is doing that in our world as his presence fills this earth. That God and the reality of who he is, the life that is found in him and in him alone is going out to every people, every tribe, every, every tongue, throughout every nation. And we're going to get into a little bit more of that later this morning. But this directly ties to what we've been looking at as a church in the book of Exodus. If you remember in Exodus chapter 9, in the middle of the plagues and God coming to Pharaoh, the, the ruler of Egypt, saying, let my people go. And in response to Pharaoh's stubbornness, in response to Pharaoh setting himself up as an equal to Yahweh, the God of Israel. You remember what God told Pharaoh through Moses, that I have raised you up for this purpose, that the entire world would know that I am God. Everything that God did to redeem his people out of slavery in Egypt, to defeat the Egyptians, a, a, a murderous, evil, uh, unjust, unjust people, God did so that his name would be made great in all of the earth. If you remember in Exodus chapter 29, after God has laid out all of the instructions for the tabernacle, this space where God would come to dwell with his people, inhabit this space, to be with his people, among his people. After God has given him the instructions of, of, of what it means to have a priesthood, uh, 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 priests who will minister on behalf of God to the people and be that mediator between the people and God. God says to Israel that I will dwell among you and you will know that I am God. The whole earth will know that God is God. God's own people will know that he is their God. And in, in, in Exodus chapter 40, after the tabernacle is completed, God's presence comes and dwells in that tabernacle. His glory fills that space, that tabernacle, which is a microcosm of creation in the way that it's built and the materials that it's used, that God was teaching his people. This was an object lesson for them, that God not only wanted to fill this tent made of poles and, and, and fabrics and with different furniture, God not only wanted to fill that space, but God's desire was to fill the, entire, the entirety of his creation, that all people, that all the earth, would know that he is God. And in this, he showed Israel their role in this mission, that they were to be, in Exodus chapter 19, a, 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 a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, that as they lived as a people on this earth, that God's work in them and God's work through them would be a testimony to all of the other nations of the, of the earth that this God, the God of Israel, Yahweh, is the one true God. 
And God would do this to fulfill his covenant way back in Genesis 12 to Abraham of saying that through you and through your people that will come after you, that I will bless every other nation in this world. But as we saw in Exodus, as we've seen throughout the entire Old Testament, the people of Israel failed. They couldn't live up to that mission. They couldn't live up to that role that God had created them for. Over and over and over again, they ran after other gods. They chose a different way of life. They did not witness to the nations that their God was the one true God because they were people just like you and just like me. They were people who were flawed. They were people who were sinful. They were people who were broken. And that is why we celebrate Advent, this season of longing, this season of hopefulness, because we look back and we stare squarely into the eyes of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ came. That's the word Advent is, is taken from the Latin word that means coming, to come, that, that God himself came to this earth in order to fulfill his own mission, that his glory, that his presence would spread to all people, would spread throughout the earth. And so this morning, what I want to do in a brief amount of time is I want to answer two questions with you. The first is this, why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus come? And the second, I want to spend a little bit more time on this question. How did Jesus come? Why did Jesus come? And how did Jesus come? And so first, if you're already there, I want to look with you at John chapter 1. John chapter 1. And John writes these words. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light, the true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own people, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received 
grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Why did Jesus come? God, since we left the book of Exodus, had been revealing himself over and over and over again, revealing more and more and more about himself. You remember in Exodus 34, after the children of Israel, after they had heard the voice of God, camped around the mountain and seen the presence of God, the lightning and the thunder and the, and the cloud, the majesty and the power of God, they decide this God is not for us. We want to build our own God. We want to make a gold cow, and we want to worship that instead of this God. And God says, okay, that's what you want to do. You can have that, but now I'm going to wipe you off the face of the earth. And Moses steps in. And Moses doesn't have to twist God's arm. He doesn't have to beg God. He doesn't have to promise God all of these things. He simply says, God, forgive us. God, have mercy on us. And God does. God relents. And in his grace, in that moment, when his people deserved to die, God reveals more of himself and gives more of himself to them in a way that in, 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 more than he ever had up to that point. And in Exodus 34, he says, this is who I am, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow God who is just, a God who is forgiving. And generation after generation that came after this, this people that we read about in Exodus, generation after generation experienced more and more of this God. God showing and proving these things to be true about himself in different ways, revealing the truth, revealing what is real from what is not real, what is true from what is not true. But the one thing that continued to remain was that there was a separation between God and his people. As much as God was revealing himself to his people, there was still a divide. They couldn't really know him like he desired to be known. They couldn't really experience the transformation that he wanted them to experience. And that is why in Hebrews chapter 1, the writer of Hebrews says, In various times and in various ways, God spoke to his people, revealed himself to his people through prophets. We see that throughout the Old Testament. We see that into the New Testament. But the writer of Hebrews says, Now he speaks to us through his Son. And that is what John is getting at here in the first chapter of his gospel. That is why he refers to Jesus Christ as the Word, the Word of God. That God is revealing himself in an active way, in a personal way. 
through Jesus Christ. And in verses 4 through 10, John says that this word, this Jesus, whom God is revealing himself to this world in a, a physical way, a personal way, is the light. This Jesus, this word, is the light. And what we know about light is that it invades darkness. That wherever light is, darkness is not. Light cannot exist, or excuse me, darkness cannot exist with light. But when we think about darkness, when we think about what it means to be in darkness, we cannot see in darkness. We don't know where we are. We don't know where we want to go when things are pitch black and we are, when we are in the darkness. And when the Bible talks about darkness, it's talking about people and places who aren't where they're supposed to be and aren't caught up in the presence of God like God created them to be. They are living in an unreality. They are living in, in a way that is not the truth, that is not real, that is not what God intended. And Jesus came to show us the way. People in darkness, people not where we were supposed to be, people not able to know where we are supposed to go in this life. Jesus came to shine light on the truth to show us what is real, to show us who God really is, who we really are, what this world really is, and what it really is supposed to be. Jesus came to reveal what is true. And John says in verses 11 through 13 that there is no escaping the light. We all have to deal with the light. We can't run from the light. We can't pretend that the light is not here. That when Jesus Christ came, God once and for all said, this is true. This is what's true. This is what's real. And everyone has to deal with that. And John says that some rejected it. Some said, I don't want that light. We don't want to know what is real. We want to live this way. We want to believe this way. We want to think and feel and act and be in relationship in a different way than what God has said is true and the way that brings life. But others said, yes, we will receive the light. We receive the light. And when we receive the light, John says that we receive it and become children of God. That God makes us his sons. That God makes us his daughters, that God brings us from outside of his family into his family, that we are born into the family of God. And finally, through Jesus, there is no distance. There is no separation. That we have a father that we can, whom, who, in whose presence we can live. That we have a brother in Jesus Christ whom we have given have been given all of his rights and all of his standing and all of his relationship with his father. We are sons and daughters of God. There is no more separation. And John says in chapter 14, or excuse me, in verse 14 of chapter one, that in doing all of this, bringing the light, 
showing us what's true, bringing us into the family of God that Jesus Christ has shown us the glory of God, the presence of God. And it's interesting in verse 18 that John reminds his readers, hey, remember, nobody has ever seen God. (laughs) Because to see God for who he is fully means to die. No one can stand in the presence of God and live. And yet John says, Jesus has shown us who God is. No one has ever seen God. But remember what Jesus told his disciples? If you have seen me, cling to you have seen the Father. And that is our hope. That is what we cling to. That is the hope for this world that in Jesus we see the glory of God. We know what God is like. Jesus came to fulfill his Father's mission that the presence of God would fill this earth. Through Jesus, God has fulfilled his mission. And through Jesus, one day, God will complete that mission. That the presence of God will fill this earth. That people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation will know that he is God. Forever and ever and ever and ever. So that's why Jesus came. But let's talk about how. How did Jesus come? Verse 14 may be one of the most, if not the most, important verse in all of Scripture. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Notice, it's not the Word came and appeared to be flesh. He looked like a human being. He talked like a human being. He acted like a human human being. No, John is saying very clearly, God became like us. He became one of us. The word became flesh and he dwelt among us. And that word in the Greek Old Testament is the same word as tabernacle. The word of God came and tabernacled among us. What God desired to do in that physical space in the book of Exodus A a meeting place of, of fabric and poles and furniture, that God would dwell in that space. John is saying that through Jesus, God is here. Emmanuel, God with us, walking in the streets, talking and eating in people's homes, in the temple of Jerusalem. That God, the presence of God, is here. God came here to be with us. John says we have seen his glory. Jesus in flesh and blood shows us the glory of God. God's presence is here. God's presence is now. God's presence was walking and talking, speaking and eating flesh and blood. Jesus Christ world became like humanity and lived in the world in order to accomplish God's mission in the world. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. 
The Apostle Paul writes this in such a beautiful way. Philippians chapter 2. At the beginning of chapter 2, this letter to the church in the city of Philippi, Paul is addressing uh, a conflict Two people in this church, two members of this church are at each other's throats. It's creating division and faction. It's, it's, it's really messing up the unity of this uh, church and the relationships that are there. And in order, to say, in order to say, this is not how you should be living. This is not how you should be in relationship with each other. Paul uses Jesus and, and, and <clears throat> excuse me, shows Jesus as the paradigm for how these folks, how we are supposed to be in relationship with each other. Paul lifts Jesus up as a paradigm for humility, as a paradigm for looking out for others' interests instead of first looking out for our own, for counting others more significant than ourselves. And Paul writes, in starting in verse 5, have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus wasn't selfish. Jesus didn't grasp or hold tight or cling on to his rights as God. Paul's very clear to say that he didn't give up his equality with God. He didn't cease to become God when he became man. But he didn't use his equality with God to his advantage. He didn't use his equality with God and exploit it for his own interests. Instead, Jesus came and laid himself down. He emptied himself out in love. N.T. Wright put it this way, rather the eternal son of God, the one who became human in and as Jesus of Nazareth, regarded his equality with God as committing him to the course he took of becoming human, of dying, under the weight of the world's evil. This is what it means to be equal with God. As you look at the incarnate Son of God dying on the cross, the most powerful thought you should think is, this is the true meaning of who God is. He is the God of self-giving love. Self-giving love. Exodus 34. Yahweh. Yahweh. A God merciful and gracious. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. When we read this, 
And when we look at Jesus and the way that he came to this earth, the way that he lived on this earth, the way that he died on this earth, there is no triumphalism in it. There is no imperialism in it. There is no exploitation in it. Jesus made God's glory known through humility and through self-sacrifice. Jesus made God's glory known in this world by becoming like those to whom he was sent. Jesus came to humanity by becoming human. God means in chapter one when he says that he came to his own people, that Jesus came to his own people to call them back to God, to call them back to faithfulness to God, to call them back into relationship with God. And in doing so, Jesus didn't ignore Jewish culture. He didn't ignore Jewish customs. In fact, he fully participated in Jewish life. Jesus was a Jew's Jew. I know sometimes I've heard people kind of pit Jesus against religion. And I, and I know the point that people are trying to make there. But man, when you read the Gospels, you will not find a more religious Jew than Jesus, a more cultural Jew than Jesus. Jesus observed the Passover every year. Jesus observed all the other Jewish festivals. He was regularly in the synagogue participating in worship in the synagogue. He attended weddings and funerals. He read publicly from the Jewish scriptures just like every other Jewish rabbi teacher would have done. And in Jesus' penultimate teaching that we looked at last year, the Sermon on the Mount, what God said it means to live with him under his rule, Jesus doesn't throw out the law. Instead, Jesus affirms it and says, this is how God means for this to be understood and lived. Jesus came to his own people. He was born a Jew to call the Jews back to himself. How did Jesus come? By making God's glory known in a way that people could see it, hear it, touch it, and understand it in their own context. And so when we think about this for us, when we talk about being a church who has been called to participate in God's mission to make his name known throughout the world. This has serious implications for how we do it and how we approach it. And I want to close by giving you two examples from my past. The first, when I was in high school, I was a junior in high school, we had a new student come and join my class. And he and his parents were from South Korea. And his name was Samuel. And I got to know Samuel. We, had, we shared a lot of the same interests. Uh, he was a really fun guy to be around. And I learned pretty quick that he was also a follower of Jesus. And the, his family was as well. And as I got to know him, uh, I learned that they had moved to my town in the middle of Appalachia, a small, basically all-white town. 
from Brazil. I was like, how in the world did you get here from Brazil? What were you doing in Brazil? He was like, well, my parents are missionaries. And we left South Korea when I was really young and to go to Brazil and to participate in what God is doing in Brazil. I'm like, okay, well, why are you here? My parents, like, what brought you here? It's like the same thing. My parents are still missionaries, and we live here, and we're trying to reach people here. I got to tell you, that blew my categories. That blew my mind. I grew up in a church with a thriving missions program. We had missionaries that were coming in almost monthly from the field, (laughs) reporting back, this is what God's doing. This is how we're involved in it. This is how you can pray. We supported, you know, many, many missionaries. But as I looked at that mission board out in our church's lobby, there was one thing that was true about everybody on that board. They were white Americans which is great. Nothing wrong with that. But here, I'm learning through my friend Samuel that the mission of God is not just a white American Christian thing. That I'm being exposed to someone who was born in a different country, who was raised in a different culture, who looked different from me. And I learned through him as his parents moved to this small little town in southern Ohio, sent their son to the public school, started a business to support their family, and was actively working to reach people in my town, just like my church was, just like I was, for Jesus Christ. I learned that people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation were going to other people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I learned so much through that, that God's mission isn't tied to a particular cultural identity, that God's presence filling the earth doesn't require cultural conformity. And sadly, if you read the history of Christian missions, especially over the last two to three hundred years, you will find that much of it has been tangled up in imperialism, colonialism, and cultural identity. For us to participate as a church, as individuals, in the mission of God with any level of fruitfulness and to go to people who are far off We have to be aware of our own cultural biases. We have to be aware that we haven't cornered the market on what it means to follow Jesus. That what we do here in this space and in this country is an expression, same, our own culture of what it means to worship God and to follow him. But that might not be the same in other parts of the world. We have to be aware of that. We have to learn through that. We have to, like Jesus, be willing to lay down our lives to live in ways that are different than the ways that are culturally comfortable for us. We have to lay down our lives for the sake of others. Let me give you another example. The summer before my senior year, I was on a mission trip in Slovakia, of all places, in Eastern Europe. 
And I was there for a couple of months, and it was a horrible summer. Uh, it, was, it, it was really difficult in a number of different ways. But the thing that was most significant, and I believe for me personally, the thing that made it so difficult, is that I was resisting God that entire summer. I was making plans for my life after college, and it didn't include what I knew God wanted me to do. I wanted to do something different. I wanted to do something that made me feel good, something that I thought would bring me happiness and bring me life. And it was different from what I knew God wanted me to do. And I was battling God. I was resisting him. And at the same time, I was reading a book about the life of a man named Hudson Taylor. Some of you may have heard of Hudson Taylor. He was a missionary to China in the 1800s. This book that was written by his son. Hudson Taylor was born in England to parents who were fascinated with the Far East, as it was called in those days. And they prayed upon the birth of their son that God would use him in his work in the country of China. Hudson came to Jesus as a teenager. And in the years following that, he worked preparing for, for a mission in China. He trained uh, in medicine, he studied Mandarin, and he immersed himself in the scriptures and in prayer. And in 1853, he sailed out of Liverpool Harbor in England and arrived in Shanghai, China. Now, Shanghai in that time was one of five what they called treaty ports, that the Chinese allowed foreigners to come and to enter their country through. And as Hudson arrived in Shanghai and he began to minister to the people in Shanghai, God placed upon him a burden to go further in commercial the interior of China, to go away from a bustling commercial harbor city filled with foreigners into the more traditional, culturally Chinese villages up the Yangtze River. But as God began to put this burden on his heart, he knew that this would result in some significant changes in his life and in the way that he identified as a missionary. He knew that this would require a particular identification with the Chinese people that he sought to reach. To reach those in the interior of China, he needed to go all in, so to speak. And the way that he did that was to adopt Chinese dress. We may think that that is not a big deal. That kind of makes sense. Uh, but listen to what his son wrote in this book. That step was not as simple as it seemed. Wearing Chinese dress in those days involved shaving the front part of the head and letting the hair in the back grow long. No missionary or foreigner ever conformed to such a custom. Hudson Taylor had been in China for a year and a half and realized the social ostracism such an action would involve. For a time, there was a struggle, though he was increasingly convinced of the wisdom of the step from a higher point of view. It was access to the people he desired. This was so forward-thinking in his day. No missionary 
had ever done that before. No missionary in China up to that point was willing to give up their own customs, their own culture, their own way of dress and, and, and looking, presenting themselves. So Hudson Taylor cut his hair. And he bought traditional Chinese clothes to wear. And listen to what happened. His son Wright wrote, everything opened up after that in a new way. He was not even recognized as a foreigner until he began to preach and distribute books and see patients. Women and children came around much more freely. And the crowds were less noisy and excited when he showed up. Their homes were open to him as never before. And it was possible to get opportunities for quiet conversation with those who were spiritually interested. The fruitfulness of Hudson Taylor's ministry to the Chinese people cannot be understated. He started a mission agency that is now the largest mission agencies working in China and in Asia and I encourage you to read more of his story and more about his legacy that's still bearing fruit today. But none of that would have happened without a desire and an intention to identify with the people as much as he could, to understand their life, the way that they lived, the way that they thought, the way that their culture prepared them to live and to immerse him immerse himself as much as he could into their way of life. At Soma Church, we have done a really, really intentional work since the beginning of talking about how important it is for us in this city to reach people where they are, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our workplaces, the places that we play and that we have fun and that we enjoy. We are people living, working, playing in specific places with other people who come from different walks of life, who have a different way of seeing things, who have a different way of living. We do our best to know where we are, where God has put us, and who we're connected to so that we can love people where they're at, so that we can meet real needs in our community, not just ones that we think are there, that we can communicate the good news of Jesus Christ in a way that connects and that people can understand, and that we show gospel hospitality in ways that are real and tangible for those who are looking for relationship and a place to feel safe and loved. As church, as a church, and as individuals, we minister to people here in the same way that we want to minister to people all over the world. And as a church, as we talk about participating in God's mission across the earth, when it comes time for us to raise money to support people, when it comes time for us to raise up some of you, to go, when it comes time for us to respond to the Spirit moving and saying, I want you here, 
I want you to go here. I want you to be involved in this work over there. The way that we minister here in our community, in our city, to people who are different from us will better prepare us for what God has for Soma Church somewhere else. So as we talk about policies and fundraising and partnering with missionaries and mission organization, this is important to us. This is how we believe that we should do it. This is how we believe that we should be involved in the mission of God because it's what Jesus did. It's how Jesus came to us by coming to people and becoming like them in order to reach them in order that they would know the glory and the presence of God. And so that's our heart. We're a young church. We still don't know what we're doing. We still don't know where God is leading us and what God has for us. But we do know this. We know what God's mission is, to fill the earth with his glory and his presence. And we know how we are supposed to participate in that mission by laying ourselves down laying our rights down, laying our way of doing things down, laying our comforts down and our preferences down for the sake of others so that they will know the presence and the glory of God. As we come to communion this morning, as we take a piece of the bread and we dip it in the juice, I'm reminded of one of my favorite songs that we sing this time of year. The hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. In the last verse of that hymn, we sing it this way. O come desire of nations, bind all peoples in one heart and mind. Bid envy, strife, and quarrel cease, and fill the earth with heaven's peace. Rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel has come. God is with us. And where the people of God are, God is there. And as God sends us throughout this earth, his presence will be there. As people throughout this earth come into the family of God, the presence of God is there where they are. The glory of God is there. And that is our prayer. And that is our hope. And humbly, we ask God to use us in that mission. If you are a follower of Jesus this morning, I invite you to come. Come and take a piece of the bread. Dip it in the juice. Remembering that just as Jesus came, we are promised that he will come again. And that the earth will be filled with his presence. Amen. God, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that your mission is a mission that you have been committed to long before we ever showed up here and that your mission will continue long after we are gone, that you will get glory, that your presence will fill the earth, that it's not up to us to make sure that that happens, that you said even the rocks would cry out as a testament to your glory. But God, it is our joyful participation in this mission that we desire, that you desire, 
that you have invited us to experience. And so I pray for our church that we would start here in this city being people who lay down our lives for the sake of others, being people who go to others who are different from us, knowing that as we are doing that, that when you call us to go away from this place, to distant lands, to different cultures, different people, that we will be better prepared to be fruitful in the mission that you have invited us to participate in. Jesus, thank you that you came. Thank you that you are coming back again. In your name and with that hope, we pray this morning. Amen.